Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for a conversation with Bill Treasurer. And Bill is the founder of Giant Leap Consulting, a courage-building consulting firm. Bill's the author of five books on courage and leadership and has personally led over 1,000 leadership programs for clients across the world that include NASA, Saks Fifth Avenue, UBS, Southern Company, eBay, Lenovo, Spanx, and many more. Prior to founding Giant Leap, Bill was an executive at Accenture, a $35 billion management consulting firm, where he became the company's first full-time internal executive coach. And Bill now resides in Asheville, North Carolina, which is like a vacation wonderland. So he's living the dream. Bill, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Andy, I'm so thankful to be here. And uh, but you live in a pretty good place there too. It's great for vacationers. I do. It's true. I live in Orlando, which is probably the number one tourist destination in the world, mostly for all the theme parks. I don't know if it is for the weather. I I feel like it's very hot. But uh, obviously, (laughs) when you live up north in the cold, uh, that can be pretty appealing. Uh, This time of year, it's warm everywhere. So we're okay. We're recording this in the summer. But I'm uh, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, anytime I come across anyone who is talking about courage... I think it's it's such an important thing to get into, especially when you really get into what it means to be courageous, and which is not, as I've found, the absence of fear. It's really about acknowledging fear, uh, which a lot of people don't take the time to do, and then taking action anyway. So, how did this all come about? Tell me, you know, how you got to where you are today, and and what you do. Yeah, the inspiration for me to have a courage building company. And so Giant Leap Consulting, our mission is to help people and organizations be more courageous. And for me, if I rewind my career far enough, the reason is because I encountered my own courage at one point. I was not a great athlete, not built for football, not tall enough for basketball. But one day at the local pool, me and my buddies were doing back jumps and back dives. And by mistake, I pulled my legs around, I did a backflip. And they couldn't do it. So this became my little sport. And I got good as a springboard diver on the low board. I won the Westchester County Diving Championships three times where I grew up in New York. 
And then colleges started to dangle scholarships in front of me. And they said, Bill, you know, you're a great low board diver. We, we think we'd like to have you here. We might Wait. even have a scholarship. But, uh, but you also have to have a high board list of dives. Tell us about your high board list of dives. And I didn't have a high board list of dives because I was and am petrified of heights. So what happens a lot of times, Andy, is that the thing that is your limitation, the thing that challenges you, the thing that pokes you in the chest and says, you're afraid of me, what are you going to do about it? And then you have sort of a choice to make. Am I going to, in my case, would I run away from another sport? Or would I run towards the carrot of maybe getting a scholarship? And so I had a coach who would take me down to Iona College in Nourishell, New York, where they have a, high, a diving board that was built on a hydraulic lift. So we could actually take it and move it from one meter to one and a half meters. And now, you know, and then I did like 100 dives there and 200 dives there, 300 dives. Got, I got used to it. And when I got bored, he now moved it to two meters. And then I do 100 dives there. And eventually, I got a three meter list of dives. And it's through, by walking through fear, as you said, and I got a full scholarship to West Virginia University. But it didn't stop there. That same process I used later to become a member of the U.S. high diving team, diving from heights that scale to 100 feet into small pools, traveling at speeds in excess of 50 miles an hour. Whoa. Still afraid of heights. Huh. How did you do that? <laughs> you know, it's the same process. Like no high diver goes from 100 feet even one time before jumping a hundred times from one foot, there's an incremental process. And, and this is really how courage can work sometimes when you do what I call lead ups. Like instead of taking on the big, hairy, giant thing that's activating your courage, do it in smaller steps. So, you know, a high diver goes 10 feet and jumps, and that's not hard to jump 10 feet into the water. Then you move it up to 10, 20 feet, and now your heart's racing a little bit. And you got to get your legs right before you hit the water. And you got to do that 50, 60 times before you decide to move it up to 30 feet. But before you know it, you've worked your way up through an incremental process that I call modulation of comfort, that you allow the person to move into a discomfort zone. And discomfort is preeminently important when it comes to courage, because it's where you find your courage, not in comfort. You find it in discomfort. So you got to move into discomfort. But then you have to let people acquire skills in that uncomfortable place, gain some confidence, gain some competence. And as they do, once they get routinized with it, they're going to eventually get bored with that. Then it's a clue. Boredom's a great clue. Move them back out into discomfort. So this modulation between comfort and discomfort. And so now I call my business Giant Leap Consulting because I help people and organizations take whatever high dives Mm. metaphorically in their own career or organizationally that they might be facing. I like that. And such a cool story. And you reminded me of an important lesson I learned about fear. And of course, you talked about moving into that, continuing moving into that discomfort zone. And uh, you know, many of us look at this stuff, know that you know, growth happens on the other side of discomfort, right? We have to get uncomfortable to really learn and grow. And in studying fear, and I learned from a mentor of mine, Larry Yach, that uh, fear is really the perceived lack of control, right? So when you haven't done that thing before, you don't know what's going to happen. And so of course, you're afraid. But when you do 200 plus dives from a certain level, then now all of a sudden you have experience, which builds confidence, which builds that perceived control. And uh, it also reminds me, 
I haven't done the high dive, but uh, a couple months ago, my wife and I went skydiving for our uh, 15th wedding anniversary. And uh, definitely a scary endeavor. You know, we were strapped to these uh, guys who were jumping with us, right? They don't let you jump on your own in your first dive. And they were jumping, joking around about being their first jump. And I finally got serious. So I was like, listen, how many times have you guys done this? We're planning the way up. And the guy who was, who was strapped to my wife looked at me and said, I've done this 25,000 times. Ooh, wow. And wow. so that's serious experience. Like, you know, he knows what he's doing. There's definitely yeah. no fear because he's seen it all. He's done everything. Yeah, right. And, and you get to that place, you, you become sort of unconsciously competent, right? Like at that point, you have so much knowingness right. that you'll know what's going wrong intuitively before it goes wrong. So, I mean, that experience really matters a great deal. To what you had said too earlier, and I think it's a key point to stress, is that courage is not the absence of fear. John McCain wrote a book called Why Courage Matters. Mm. And he said, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's acting despite the fact that you're afraid. So if you think of that, if we get honest about it, courage is fearful. Courage is fearful. When you are in a courageous moment, your knees are knocking, your teeth are chattering, you got riding butterflies in your stomach. But as long as you're still working through it and moving forward, it's the very definition of courage. So courage, in fact, needs fear. If you don't have the presence of fear, it's probably not courage that you're putting to work. So true. I like it. And I, and I think that that takes pressure off of a lot of people who are afraid and think, oh, I shouldn't be afraid. That other person over there is fearless. And those people that we think are fearless, either they've done it a million times or they've just learned that it's okay to be afraid and I'm going to go do something anyway. Yeah. You know, there was a great quote. I don't know it verbatim, but it was uh, by Nelson Mandela. And, and he basically said that, I, you know, people think that because I have done some things that have looked like courage that I wasn't afraid. He's like, I was afraid many times. I was afraid almost all the time, but I kept moving forward. For me, for, as a high diver, I was afraid. In fact, if you weren't afraid on that high dive ladder, there's a good chance you're going to get hurt. That, yeah. that fear makes you alert. It's a self-preservation system. But you just got to take the fear and sort of put it in your pocket or in your Speedo and, uh, and figure out how to leave that perch anyway. The interesting thing as I look more and more at fear is that I think more people are afraid of judgment than even in getting hurt. So I bet there are more people that are willing to take that jump off the high dive than to put themselves out there with books and speaking gigs and training like you have. So was that something that you were... You've written five books. You do a lot of speaking. Was that something that you were ever afraid of you had to work on or did that come easy to you? You know, the writing was for me uh, somewhat of an escape and it was something that I could tell over time that I had a certain knack for like like there's so many things that I can't do Andy like like my wife is building my out office I'm gonna have a nice out office it's a sort of next to the house it's really nice I haven't lifted a finger for that thing she doesn't want me to she she's like keep the hammers away from Bill so there's a lot of things that I can't do but I over time I've learned that I, I have a pretty confident voice when it comes to uh, writing now public speaking on the other hand, was something because truly to your point, when you're engaged in this courageous act like that, you have all these eyeballs looking at you. So there's a high degree of self-consciousness. 
And I also think you're right that people will resist doing certain things in a workplace if there's high visibility to doing it, knowing that their failure potentially could be showcased and then judgment comes, right? Then people say that you were foolish to do that and what were you thinking and I never would have done that and all the stuff. So you're right that it does add a level of hesitancy to whatever the big move is that you're contemplating. Okay, so you you built this experience overcoming major fear of heights and jumping off the diving board and, and learning that process. You later got into business and consulting and became an executive coach. And you built this training that uh, you know over a thousand leaders have been through on courage. How did you translate this into you know the corporate leadership world and and what is that all about? Well, when I first started the business, I started it as a risk leadership company because mm. there was a whole practice on risk mitigation, which is about the mitigation, minimization, and control of risk. And I thought, well, that all that's good. But you know, at some point you actually got to take a risk too. That's what my business will be about. Risk leadership, not risk management. But as soon as I started meeting with CEOs and I would talk about risk leadership, that it was still a four-letter word, that word risk. So working with a branding professional, we got down to the core of it. And they're like, you know, Bill, what you're really about is what you're really about is courage. It is the application of risk. It's risk in action, but it's really about courage. And so as I positioned that, I get much more reception from CEOs and such. So I wanted to codify the idea of courage. I I thought, well, how can we bring courage to the workplace? And if it had frameworks and such, what would be important to learn about courage? And of course, I contemplated what did I learn 1,500 times standing on a little one foot by one foot perch, 100 feet in the air. But I sort of thought about courage a lot. And I did some research. Uh, I had a, a Emory University student would gather some research for me and such. And it came into my first book, that one did. And if I've made a contribution to courage, it's this. It's that courage is not all the same. There's different dimensions of courage. I break them into three large behavioral buckets. There might be a fourth, maybe a fifth, but three behavioral buckets that I call the three buckets of courage. And this is part of the training that we do. The first bucket, you've already alluded to it before, is the courage of first attempts when you haven't done something before, but other people may have done it. They've already crossed this threshold. But for you, you haven't crossed it yet. So it's got a big unknown factor to it. I call this try courage. It's the courage of first attempts. When you attempt it, you try it for your very first time. Or maybe you wipe out and have to try it again. That's one bucket of courage. It's the courage of action, the courage of initiative. The second bucket of courage isn't really about action. Sometimes, in fact, it's releasing my need to control or my need to be right. And it's the courage of relationships and vulnerability. It's trust courage. It's the courage for me to entrust you. And now your actions, I'm having to sort of trust that your actions won't harm me. And the risk is involved is that you could betray me. If I trust you and then you take advantage of that trust, I could get hurt. Therefore, it takes courage on my part to get to trust. So you can see how that's different than try courage, the courage of action. So you've got the courage of vulnerability, trust courage. And then the third bucket of courage is what we normally associate courage with in the workplace. And that is the shaking voice, standing up for what they think is important, saying the truth in the meeting when it's impolitical to do so, speaking truth to power, speaking truth to each other. And we call this tell courage, the courage of voice and assertiveness, the courage of the truth teller, which is hard to do. The number one thing we look for in a leader 
is honesty cross-culturally. It's the first attribute we look for. And yet honesty comes with consequences. And it's very hard because sometimes my honesty may not be something you invited and it may harm you and it may hurt you or hurt your feelings emotionally. So it's hard to get to. So, you, you know, I know you're married. I'm married. True. My wife has, uh, occasionally my wife will say, honey, do I look fat in this dress? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we do socially appropriate lying all the time to protect somebody else's feelings or to keep ourselves from being in trouble. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the risk associated with tell courage is that I could get in trouble for hurting your feelings. That's one of the risks. So three buckets of courage, try, trust, tell. Right. Okay. I like that. And uh, I, I can easily see, especially from my work in the corporate world, where that is needed in different areas. You know, looking at that first bucket of first attempts, I see that one as a big one. That was a big shift for me. And the reason why I'm able to get so much done and do different things and put stuff out on social media and everything is because I'm willing to make that first attempt. Uh, I've noticed a lot of people stop and don't do that. And I don't know if this fits under the, the first attempt, the first courage bucket or this trust courage bucket, because a lot of people are, quote, perfectionists, which means they have to get it all figured out before they take action. And I've learned, by the way, for you perfectionists out there, that's really just fear, right? Holding you back of trying something and being judged. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. You're right on two fronts, right? Uh, on the, the first one in trying something, right? That you're willing to do it, that initiative to do it the first time and experience the first. And by the way, human beings face these thresholds literally thousands of times in the course of your life. The first yeah. day you entered school and walked through the, the doorway to school, the first time you drove a car, the first person you asked on a date, the, when you decided to buy a house, there's always this, this, hesitancy before you do the thing. Um, but the other thing that you said is also true that does connect to trust courage, and that is perfectionism, this idea of being controlling, right? Like I'll often ask groups of people in my keynotes, I'll say, how many of you in this room have ever been, particularly in the, in the corporate world, mm -hmm. how many of you have ever been described as or would describe yourself as controlling? And like so many hands go up. And then the second question I ask is now, how many of you in the room absolutely love to be controlled by people? And no hands go up in the room, right? Yeah. You know, and the more controlling you are, the less you like to be controlled by other people. And perfectionism does get, it, it inhibits our willingness to experiment because you're right about what you had said earlier, the visibility of if I wipe out, if I fail, it's going to be a visible failure. People will know that I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. And so they stay on this side of the line of the risk, whatever it may be. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, getting to the, you said the, the top attribute of a great leader is honesty. And I think it's easy to look at that and say, well, yeah, honesty, integrity. We want our leaders to be honest. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a white lie every now and then about, you know, do I look fat in this dress? That kind of thing, the example you gave. But really, I see a lot of uh, leaders, managers who are diminishing their people, who are micromanaging and who are maybe withholding information. And it's all done out of fear, right? They're afraid that they're going to, if something, someone finds something out, they're going to lose their job. Mm. That's the big fear. So, to be honest, sometimes does take courage. It may not just be about hurting someone's feelings. You know, say you have information that a project you you supported is not really that successful. Do you honestly tell people that and take the risk that someone's going to say, "Well, you proposed this project, and now you're fired"? Right. And sometimes we feel that if we tell this honesty, 
that it's going to do more harm than good. Like if suppose somebody asked me in the town hall meeting, Hey, I I heard there's rumors of layoffs. Are we going to go through another round of 10% layoffs? And if I'm like, yes, as a matter of fact, we are. So look at your neighbor, figure out which, you know, it's really look right. You know, so, so honesty as a practical matter, I mean, we want transparency and honesty. And I think that the other thing that you said, there are some, I think that a piece of this is generational too, right? Like I grew up, I'm an echo boomer. I'm at like the tail end of boomer and at the beginning of Gen X. But if you're situated in the heart of the boom and you're a real boomer, you see information as power and sort of on a need to know basis. And part of your fear is that if I let you know and you see my cards, you'll now have my power. And, and right. therefore, you know, what use will I have? And th- this is what makes me useful. I've got this secret power that, uh, that I'll dole out when you need to know it. Um, so there's a lot of fear around that transparency. Yeah. But now get the millennial generation who grew up with it, right? Like right. In, in good ways and bad. The, the, uh, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, this is part of this, you know, sort of uh, the world of today. I, I'm all about transparency. I like to think I am. Um, but maybe my kids would say different. I don't, I yeah. don't know. No, I, I think that I think that authenticity and transparency is so important in leadership today. And I'm a at the end of Gen X, beginning of, you know, millennial generation. And I think that, you know, I don't never like to generalize about your relation, but generally, you know, millennials on into Gen Z now are used to information being readily available for everything, right? So knowledge, like you said, is not power because I can get knowledge anytime I want. I just go on Wikipedia or YouTube and learn anything, right? Right. It's action, it's execution, it's relationships that are power in my mind. And so the more you're authentic and honest and act with integrity, the more you're able to build those relationships and that network that's going to allow you to get more done in the end. I think so too. Also, I would add to that is I think that there, there should be a premium on originality as well. You know, it, uh, I like, a, I read an interview with James Taylor, the, the singer. Yeah. And he, he said what he missed about growing up in Chapel Hill area, North Carolina, where he grew up, is he missed taking long walks and having long thoughts thoughts that you could bring to completion where you were thinking yourself, mulling something over and really dwelling on something so that by the time you were done thinking, you had formed your own belief, right? Versus there was a book a couple of years ago called The Shallows, how we're all sort of like surfing along from thing to distraction to distraction. Are we really becoming more intelligent or are we sort of surfacing things in our brain, you know, like swifting through like a, like I'm on Tinder or something, you know, just like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything about that. All right. So we've been talking a lot about theory, um, fear, courage, leadership. Let's put something into practice. So, uh, you know, for people, especially that are in learning and development, talent development, helping develop the people in their organizations, what do I do with this information? How do I help my leaders become more courageous? So the first place to start, I always think, is having a goal that's worthy of putting your courage to work because that, that it's just like a solid mission that you know is going to fire up people and is worthy of people's courage mojo. So what I tell people at the individual level is to ask, answer the holy question, the four most important words you'll ever learn in the English language. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want that you don't have yet? that there's a gap between who you are today and who you are, are trying to become. And what are the courageous actions that will help close that gap and get to you the place that you want to be? But organizationally, 
that would be, you translate that same idea of what do we want, the holy question, into what are the strategies of this company we're trying to become that we are not yet now that would require the courage mojo in order to get to that place. So that's the first place to start is having a worthwhile goal that uh, fires you up and makes you want to put all your passion and energy and courage to work. Yeah, and sharing that with others. I mean, having your manager, other people on board so they know what that is. Uh, you reminded me, for anybody who's read The Coaching Habit by Michael bungay Stanier, who I'm actually interviewing next week. Hey, good. Tell him Bill Treasure says hello. I saw him last week at ATD. We're friends. Oh, nice. I will tell him that. And you know, he, one of the, the seven questions that he talks about in that book is, what do you want? And it's really like, Stop dancing around and assuming things. If you're managing someone, you're coaching them, ask them what they want, and then you can help them figure out how to get there, right? Yeah, exactly. I, actually, in my case, I had a Catholic priest tell me that. Uh, when I was 31, I was going through some stuff in life, and he sort of looked at me and asked me that question, told me it was the holy question. And mm. I've never forgotten it, and I use it in coaching. Uh, and then I read Michael's book. I've got it on my shelf, and the, I was like, yeah, the question, there, there it is. That's the, that's the question. I heard it here. Okay. So help people figure out what they want. You know, define the vision or the goals. That's the most important thing to know where you want to go organizationally and individually. Uh, and then how do we help people uh, become more courageous along the journey? So if, if you're in a leadership role and now you've got people reporting to you, one thing that you should do is let each person know. Maybe it's during their performance review. Maybe it's during a team meeting. But you got to set the expectation that you're wanting courageous behavior out of people. And that means that you're going to ask them to do things that are uncomfortable. I mean, let, let's just be clear about a leader. You know, you've got two responsibilities. Leave the company better off than you found it and leave people better off than you found them. And that means your job as a leader is to make people uncomfortable. And I don't mean it in a putative, fear-stoking way. I mean it in a way that nudges them out into discomfort to prevent apathy and keep them inspired and keep them growing so that they can add more value to the organization and have a more solid, secure career as a result of that. So meet with your people individually, collectively. Set the expectation that discomfort is part of their job, including pushing back on you as the leader. Give them permission to be truth tellers with you. Be clear that you don't want to be surrounded by sycophants and yes people and brown nosers and that you want them to push back. But that's not enough. You also have to give them coaching on how to push back with you in a way that your ears will hear it. Like, I don't want a person to be, you know, calling me out in front of the whole team when I'm the team leader. I don't want to be, you know, confronted when I'm getting ready to walk into a board meeting and I got another priority on my mind. So give the people coaching on how to disagree with you so that in a way that you can hear it and give them permission and create the expectation that they'll do it. I love that. And you remind me of another great book, uh, Multipliers by Liz Weissman, uh, where she talks about the tenets of multiplier leaders. And you know, one of them is that they are a challenger. One of them is they're a debate maker. They actually create debate before they decide and they're not just nice, fluffy, friendly people. They will challenge their people, get them out of their comfort zone, stretch them beyond what they thought was possible to help them grow. And I love what you said about the mission, the goal of any leader in an organization, lead the organization a better place, leave the people a better place. If you think about that and keep that in your back of your head, that can guide you in all the actions you take. Yeah, you've probably have seen it. I certainly have seen it that a lot of leaders and a lot of people in senior executive roles, they fixate on results. And now look, you got to get results, right? But results are in ends. They're yeah. not the means. So right. there's like the means to the results and there's the results, but they focus on production and profits and schedule. And, and it's all about result. What, you know, what are we dropping the ball on? 
But we have to pay way more attention to the means because it's the way we get the results. And that's how treatment of people comes into factor and comes into play, right? And challenging them and helping them grow and, and creating appropriate healthy debate and healthy disagreement. Those are means to get you the results that you want to. I like that. And to that end, you have a book called Leaders Open Doors, a radically simple leadership approach to lift people, profits, and performance. So you're bringing all these things together, the people's, the profit, the performance. Uh, but what does doors have to do with it? What is, you know, what is yeah. this book about? You, Andy, you might like this. Uh, you, you've got two kids, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and they're younger, right? They're yep. three and five at this point. Three and five. Uh, so when my son, I've got, I've got twin 15-year-olds and a 12-year-old. When my 12-year-old was five, he came home from the preschool one day and my wife said, hey, honey, Ian got to be the class leader today. Make a big deal of it. And I'm like, well, make a big deal. I go around the world and I teach leadership. I've written leadership <laughs> books. Of course, my son got to be I'm going to talk class. to him about leadership. Yeah. Come here, son. What did you get to do as class leader? I, I did. I was like, hey, Ian, high five. That's really cool, buddy. What'd you get to do as class leader? And he looked at me with his innocent eyes and he was so excited. And he said, I got to open doors for people. And I thought of it and I was like, like the RCA Victor dog. Like I was like, yeah. you know, and uh-huh. I, I, I was like, wow, you know, uh, that when you really cut through to what matters most about leadership, it's about opportunities. It's about opportunities that you're creating for people for them to grow and develop so that they add more value to the company. And thus you're creating opportunities for the company at the same time. It's really about opening doors. And so that book became about... Within two days, I started to outline and sketch what would a book about Leaders Open Doors be about. And there are different chapters that include things like the door... The last chapter that culminates is the door to your open heart, that they've got to see you as a leader beyond your role as leader. You have to be emotionally available for them and have vulnerability. They need to see the person behind the nameplate. And that's the culmination. But there's also the, the opening doors for others, that you as a leader have to be extremely conscious of the likelihood that you will promote people who sound like, talk like, and look like you. And that's dangerous. You have to have a heart for others. Oh, yeah. Oftentimes, the diverse communities that are nothing like you, that you've got to pay extra attention to them. So it's got seven doors like that. I love that. So I mean, you, do you connect that to servant leadership in a way that you're, you know, you're opening doors to, uh, for others and creating these opportunities and really focusing on how do I help everyone around me? Yeah, it, it's connected, certainly connected to the idea of servant leadership. And that idea that, you know, that my job is to do right by my people, right? Now, and I'm always cautious like that, that word because it, it has a little stigma attached. On the one hand, if you know what servant leadership is about, you sort of get it, right? Yeah. But for uh, sort of the old style leader, they might be like, that was servile and that, you know, it sounds like impish and it sounds weak. But to the extent that it means focusing on your people and taking the focus off of you, like I always say that the number one law of leadership is it's not about you. Mm. Right, it's, it's not about you, the leader. It's about those being led. That's where the attention needs to be. Not how much power I'm getting. What are my options and shares? How much is my compensation growing? How big is my parking space? It's, what's the next level I got to climb? It's not about you. It's about them and what you're doing for them to better their lives and conditions in the service of helping them better the company that, uh, that they're serving. I like that. And the same can be said for parenting, right? The number one rule is it's not about you. And uh, I even worked with a parenting coach at, at one point who told me the most important advice was, uh, I forget what his acronym was, uh, but it was basically to remind yourself that it's not all about you, right? It, it's about them. And like even the tantrum they're having is not about you. Stop taking everything so personally, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, but I want to go back to 
what you're saying about leadership and where leaders often hold people back and that risk that if you really pour into people and develop them, that they might get promoted to your level, they might even rise above you. And I think that you know the one of the biggest things that holds leaders back from being true multipliers, you know, to use Liz Weissman's terminology and really multiplying their people is that fear that they are going to develop their people in a way that's going to surpass them and that the company is going to go, oh, you know what, Bill, you developed these people, they're better than you now, so we don't need you anymore. They're going to let you go, which in my mind is just, I totally get it. But it's crazy because if they would hopefully recognize you as a, as a talent developer, right, a talent magnet and would want to keep you. But I think that's the fear that holds people back. It is a fear that holds certain people back, right? The, yeah. This idea that if I, you know, uh, the, and you've heard this too, but you know, what, what the equation is people are like, well, should we really invest in training and development? Because right. then that person becomes poachable and they might go somewhere else. And then you're like, well, what are you going to do? Not invest in them and have a lower quality talent base that, that is not poachable. So I think it's the same thing uh, sort of when it comes to leadership as well. So sure, you could take the risk and invest in, in spending time developing the people that report to you maybe they will move up. First of all, so what, right? Like, I mean, there will be opportunity for you too. And you're creating a legacy. You're, you're leaving the company and people better off. Like we said, that that's so important. I think that it goes back to an earlier point. You talked about authenticity and transparency. I like a leader who's comfortable in their own skin Mm -hmm. and that, that can withstand flack when, uh, when they put forth an idea that their identity doesn't need to be validated by whether people like them or don't like them, and that are comfortable enough to say, to take joy in somebody else's success, right? To be able to invest in a person and take joy when they get promoted and take joy when they get poached and brought to a higher place in the organization and not feel personally threatened by it. But a lot of people have their own idiosyncratic self-consciousness I think it's why it stands out so much when you have somebody who is authentically comfortable in their skin and isn't feel, doesn't feel threatened by things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it takes you so much further when you spend all your time rooting for other people and you help other people, then they're going to help you. You're going to be rewarded for it. You know, there may be some stumbles along the way. All right, Bill, so you have, you've written five books, you've run this consulting practice, you, you've done all this great work, you've trained thousands of leaders, you've accomplished so many things. What's been your proudest accomplishment along your journey, if you had to take it down to one thing? I guess I could answer that question in two ways. One moment that I had that I really loved is I have worked with one company. I've worked with plenty of companies, but one company I've been working with for 15 years. And I've worked with some of those project managers before they were project managers, became project managers, became division managers, and are now vice presidents. And I remember at a, a strategic, strategic planning offsite, sitting back with another colleague of mine and we were looking at people that were giving the presentations now and they were like in you know sport jackets and dressed nice and showing professional powerpoint slides talking with confidence about the company direction and i remember when they were showing up in jeans and you know and uh, work boots and and didn't take a care in their own professionalism and now they care they give a rip right and to see that and many of them i had coached one on one some of them for years and years and to watch their progression and to be able to sit back and think first of all they did it themselves but to the extent that i was there and witnessed it and maybe in some small way said something along the way that helped them get interested more in business, get interested in becoming a better professional, help them want to strengthen their leadership and help itch their interest in leadership. 
that's a great accomplishment. I'll, I'll take that, right? Like that's uh, extremely gratifying and meaningful. Yeah, you, you developed people. You helped them along in their career. That's definitely something to be proud of. Uh, all right, flip side, you've done all these things, but I'm sure in uh, your mission to try things and, and do all kinds of different stuff, right? That you've made some mistakes along the way. So what's been your biggest failure or mistake and what did you learn from it? Andy, look at the time. I'm sorry, I don't have time to talk about that. So we'll have to uh, <laughs> close up now. I it appreciate seems like it. you're evading the question, Bill. Like, I can't tell. Is that fear? <laughs> yes. I'm being a boomer. I'm just going to tell you when I need to tell you. Um, no, you know, it's uh, the one that comes to mind is, again, same client, um, one of my best clients. There was a point in time where they were talking a lot about accountability. And, uh, and it came enough at a, a different level meetings I'd be at. I heard it come up a number of times. So I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to develop a course on accountability to serve and satisfy the client. And, uh, and I went out and I did. I found some expertise on accountability. I talked to an author of a book uh, on accountability, put together a, a, a workshop. I was already working with this group going through a leadership program and I sort of had free reign over to be able to do the summits that we were having. And so I did a workshop on accountability and it went really well. And I did a survey as part of that. But the survey involves certain mental gymnastics that when you're interpreting the results, you have to sort of flip it. One question be one to five and one, the other one would be five to one. So there were times where you had to flip it. The participants that I did the survey for and the, the uh, program for, they loved it. But then I brought all this information so proud that I had done this with the leaders, right? And I bring it to the, the senior most people in the company who I had quarterly meetings with. And I was like, I want you to know that I designed this course on accountability because I heard it come up and stuff. Now flip to the survey, right? And they're going through the survey and they, they're like, I don't understand this. And some of the questions were a poor reflection on them as a senior leadership team. Man, they, they were like, you know, what, now why did you do this again? And, and why'd you go off on your own and do it? And, and how you never asked us for any input that we could have been, you know, useful to you in doing it. And it was really, you know, it stung that meeting. I was like embarrassed. Yeah. And the owner of the company said, Bill, this is not your work. And it was like, Ooh, it's like a, an arrow through my heart. Because on the one side, I was like, holy crap, do you realize the work that I put in to pull all this stuff together in extra time that you didn't pay me for? And, and I did this that my ego was telling me that, but the sting of it was like, man, wow, I, that was a huge blind spot. Why didn't I even reach out to them and get their input and their <laughs> shaping and such? So it taught me a lesson and it taught me, the, the lesson was one of my own pride that, you know, sometimes we as consultants, we want to come in with the answer and we want to prescribe what we think is best. And we do it with good intentions, Right. But it works so much better when you do training with people and not to people. And now I'm really conscious about co-creating with my clients. In fact, I was in a design day. I have design days with my company now where I'll meet with the client, where we design the workshop that I might be delivering, but we're going to co-design it. So their ownership is higher and it's got way more relevance, the case studies and the uh, the scenarios that we put together and their involvement. And then, then it becomes their workshop, not a workshop Bill Treasure is doing to them. Yeah, I, I love that lesson. And uh, I am all about uh, co-creating when I develop custom programs that we co-create with our clients and make sure that we have all the right stakeholders in the room. That way, when, when it, gets, you know, it goes live and they say, oh, you know, this is not right or try to get skeptical... 
you say, hey, you were in the room. You co-created this with me. You know? Exactly. You like, why didn't you say something back then? But the chances of that happening are pretty minimized when they're involved and you don't get them saying, Bill, why did you go create this? So great lesson to learn. Would you say that was a leadership kick in the butt? Uh, maybe a rough landing, a blunder? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, so that is, uh, that's one of my books too. A leadership kick in the, well, let's just call it, but a leadership kick in the butt uh, or a word that sounds like, but, and yeah, that's what that book is about. It's about when you go over your skis, a lot of times it's because your ego puts you in that situation. You move from confidence to overconfidence and then you wipe out and you get some sort of a consequence that you need. And if you allow it to be, that could be a really great, like, I don't want to have to live that experience again with another client, but I'm glad I went through it. It's made me a better consultant. It's made me way more conscious about the need to co-create and the value of it. So you're right. On the one hand, it gives you an insurance policy in case something goes wrong because they can't call you on that because they co-created. On the other hand, you almost always get out better ideas that you hadn't thought of and scenarios that are much more relevant and targeted towards them. So sometimes it's making the blunder, right? Like all of us, nobody's perfect. And you, and this is sort of a, a lesson for talent management professionals is that, you know, you got to get out there. You're going to make some mistakes, but what you do after you make the mistake is going to be, will it make you a better, more seasoned and frankly, more humble professional? Or will you double down and just convince yourself that you were right and the world was wrong and make you a more grumpy professional? So true. I love that. And, you know, with a growth mindset, uh, you know, taking action, trying new things, uh, going back to what you were talking about earlier with courage and uh, learning from those mistakes. In the talent people development world, are there any uh, trends that you have been following or noticing that uh, are changing that world of talent or people development? It's a good question, Andy. The, the trend that, uh, that I think about, I can think of a, of a couple of things that I'm seeing. The, the first one is good and the second one's not so good. The first one, I, I think that companies now are truly valuing talent development more than they did in the past. Uh, you know, before it was kind of uh, somewhat dismissed or put off to the side, sort of thought of as under the, the umbrella of HR in a, in a dismissive way, I say that. But now talent development is at the table and talent development is uh, right next to the CFO and the COO and the CEO at the table. And it's a very legitimate practice. And it's one that CEOs are talking about all the time. Um, and frankly, I think, and I, no, no slam to any HR folks listening, but I think it's held in higher esteem than HR. So that's one trend that I see in the positive direction. The thing that is, I guess, a good, but it has some shadow is it is this miniaturization of talent development, this bite-sized nugget thing that we want to make sure that we're, and I think it's partly driven by mobile, but that our learning lessons are becoming shorter, shorter, and shorter. And so now it's like a, a one minute thing that you're looking on a mobile and, and you're learning about some specific thing in one minute. And I guess it creates efficiency, but it, it misses something as well. Uh, you know, you might be, you probably remember the days, I remember the days a long time ago when you would send people to leadership development. We talked about it earlier. You sent somebody to a leadership development program that was a week or two full weeks long. Can you imagine? And now we're, we're expecting people to learn stuff in a minute onto the next thing. I just think that there's something lost in that. Yeah. Micro learning. You know, I've had good conversations with a lot of talent leaders about this, and and there's certainly a trend of a lot of organizations going to micro learning. But I think the smart talent leaders know that there's still a time and place for the big important programs. That's how we change mindsets and behaviors, 
And so uh, I just ran uh, programs the last two weeks in a row that were four days long and uh, were highly effective. Nice. Executives, the organization I was working with. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, what's a book that you highly recommend that has been impactful for you that you often recommend to others that is not your own? Well, you know, it might surprise people and it's an oldie, but a goodie. I think there's sometimes a danger when it comes to leadership development that we get a little bit uh, caught into platitudes. We get a little bit of the deification of uh, leadership. I kind of did it myself. I mean, probably my personal favorite book of the five that I've written is Leaders Open Doors because it's got a beautiful spirit behind it. And it's written to be simplistic with a certain uh, innocence. But I, I think that we also need to be extremely conscious of leadership in the wrong hands and how dangerous it can be. And my one of my all-time favorite leadership books was written by Stanley Milgram, who did many different studies, but including the very famous electrocution studies, uh, which would see how easily people would capitulate to a authority figure and do things that were immoral. And he wrote a book called Obedience to Authority. And it's a it's an eye opening book that I think if you're a leadership practitioner, yeah, you got to look at the good stuff and the you know the Blanchers and the Cousin and Posner and all the other you know good stuff, Simon Sinek and such. But you also got to have a heads up consciousness about the danger of leadership in the wrong hands and why human beings will so easily capitulate to abhorrent leaders who end up doing bad things eventually. Like it. Last question uh, for anyone out there in talent development, people development, looking for ways to accelerate their careers. What's one more piece of advice you would give? I think invest in yourself. It is a talent-driven business. It is a talent-driven industry. And sometimes you are the talent in the room bringing information to people or helping create illumination among people, you can't afford to not be developing yourself. You can't afford to get stale. So invest in your in yourself. And you can be creative in how you do this. Last year, I flew up to Vancouver because I have two separate friends who I both respect. And both of them are authors. Uh, one of them is David Greer and another one is John Izzo. And John Izzo has sold many, many books. But I respect both of those guys so much that I knew them at an acquaintance level. But I thought to invest in Bill Treasurer, I'm going to fly up and spend a half a day with each one of those guys. I actually spent a full day with each of them. And sometimes investing in yourself, you can get clever that way. Go find some professional that you really admire, that's something that they've done in the world send them an email, give them something in return, but make a connection, but go, go, you know, learn from people who've got the stuff that you want and keep investing yourself and keep getting better. The industry needs it too. Yeah. I think it's so important. I'm so big on investing in yourself, which is why I read books every day, listen to podcasts, go to conferences, join mastermind groups, hire coaches, And uh, I think everyone needs to do that. But especially if you're in the talent development field, you're in the business of developing others, don't forget to develop yourself to, you know, fill your own cup. I actually had a conversation just last week with a listener who got in touch with me who said he just had a wake-up call because... And he runs L&D for a business unit in a large bank. And he realized that he had not been doing anything to invest in his own development. Uh, And luckily, he discovered my podcast and some of our book recommendations and uh, he started reading those and he said it's absolutely changed his life. I know that's happened for me and uh, I hear it happening for others and I just highly recommend it. And that's a big reason why I have, I'm have launching my own conference later this year, the Talent Development Think Tank, 
Uh, it's going to be November 6th and 7th in Sonoma, California, and it's an opportunity for people to come together to connect, to learn, to grow, and to truly invest in themselves and their careers and their lives and their development. And uh, so hopefully we'll check that out. You can find out more info at talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. But let's get back to you, Bill. For anybody listening who wants to get in touch with you, find out more about what you do, get your books, where's the best place for them to go? Well, the first thing I'd say, go to Andy's Think Tank. Man, I just looked at my calendar real quick. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm uh, booked that day in Chicago. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be there. Awesome. <laughs> but the, uh, the best way for folks to get in touch with me, first is my name, BillTreasurer.com. Second is the word courage building, all one word, couragebuilding.com. And then they can find out more about my company at giantleapconsulting.com. You Google me, you're going to find something. Sounds like you got a lot of great content out there. So uh, just Google Bill Treasurer and we'll have links to that in the show notes. Bill, this has been so enlightening and fascinating. And uh, I know that we could talk for probably two more hours, but uh, have to cut us off. We are out of time. Uh, So thank you again for coming and sharing your wisdom and experience and advice with us on the Talent Development Hot Seat. I enjoyed it and uh, hope you did as well. Thank you. Hey, Andy, thank you. And maybe in 2020, I can come and speak at your summit. We would absolutely love that. Thank you, man. (laughs) Take care. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible, and we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.